0: Judges chapter 3, we were here last week, we were uh, talking about Eglon and also Ehud, uh, another judge in the series of judges that uh, were God divinely used to deliver his people during more troublesome times. We come to one today and we're actually just going to be in one verse in regard to the text this morning anyways. Um, and we're going to look at Judges chapter 3. Uh, 3 verse 31 i'm gonna i I sort of um, said i'm only gonna be in one verse but obviously i'll have more than one verse in the message but i wanted to pick it up in the context of judges chapter 3 last week we ended with verse 30 and then it goes on to the last verse in that chapter and let's read that it says so moab was subdued that day under the hand of israel and the land had rest for 80 years After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Lord, we're grateful, grateful for the word of God and for every verse. And Lord, I come to this passage today and ask first and foremost you'd help us to understand it and teach it and apply it to our lives. And Lord, that wouldn't just be an exercise of intellect today, but one of the heart. One that, Lord, would challenge us and stir us to obedience and a call on our lives. All of that, Lord. We want to thank you. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name today. Amen. So verse 31 there, we are introduced to a man named Shamgar. There's only two verses in the Bible that mention this man. The next one is in the context of Judges chapter 5. His name is mentioned again. Um, but I'll I'll go to that verse later on. But he's what you would call an obscure person or someone that really isn't well known. And I'm sure you didn't wake up this morning, unless you were in the book of Judges anyways, but you didn't wake up saying, oh, what about Shamgar, that great famous man, you know, uh, most people have never heard of him or if they read their bibles and go through the bibles annually or however often you do it you go through it and you might just kind of read that verse and move on you don't stop and think about this man shamgar and we don't know a lot about him we have this verse pretty much that tells us what he did that's why he's included here in the historical record Uh, and then we have the context of chapter 5 it talks about the times in which he lived We do know from verse 30 and the close off of that section of the judges that there was a period of about 80 years, 80 years of deliverance. Basically in the scripture um, there are uh, every 40 years is considered a generation. So there were two generations of Israelites that lived in the land and it took I would say that first generation that was there under the deliverance of Ehud That followed the Lord and then we talked about this before they went back into that cycle of well going and living like the people around them their enemies and um, adopting their culture and those kind of things and violating the covenant God had made with them and established and asked commanded them to obey and and it just took one more generation, and that's it, and they're back in bondage, they're back in troubled times, and God raises up uh, a very obscure, I would almost say average kind of person in the sense of what we know about him, a man named Shamgar, and as we have this verse here, it says this, that he was, uh, after him was Shamgar the son of Anath, and the word Anath is a, actually a word for a Canaanite god of war. So I often thought about that. Either his father was a Canaanite; it's possible, um, which meant that somewhere he was his family was intermarrying into the line of the Canaanites, which they weren't supposed to do. Um, or it was a Jewish uh, man decided to name his son Anath, the Canaanite god of war, <clears throat> and. It reminds me that sometimes we adopt things of the culture and it even shows up in our names, you know, shows up in our, in the way we, we we live, those kind of things. And I'm not pointing out that today necessarily with anybody in mind, but I'm just saying it's easy all of a sudden to just become so familiar with the culture you're not supposed to be in that it just becomes routine. And that's a thought anyways from scripture, not a big one here for this text by any means because we're not talking about Anath, his father. We're talking about Shamgar. And Shamgar was a different kind of man. A man that followed God. A man that did something for the Lord. And the Lord used him to deliver his people. Uh, and very important. Now there are numerous people in scripture that are, I call, obscure servants. They appear sometimes just a few little verses. That's it. That deal with them. But they played such a pivotal role in not only history, but in the whole scheme of of God's divine uh providential plan that he has and i think of many of them in scripture there's for instance several of david's mighty men you know i love that passage he deals with in second samuel 23 with the mighty men of valor you have uh one that killed 800 men at one time with a spear it was a great warrior his name was adino and then eleazar another one of david's mighty men he he stood boldly in the day of battle and fought so long that killed so many Philistines that he his hand would not open and allow him to release his sword. It talks about his sword just being welded right to his hand, you know. Uh, there's Shemai, he's another one of David's mighty men. And he stood in a field um, of uh, an agricultural field, all right, and fought the Philistines and, and gave a great victory with that. And then there's like others like the widow of Zarephath. And she was used in a time of famine to provide for the prophet Elijah. Um, Naaman, in the story of Naaman the Syrian, who was in 1 Kings chapter 5, a man who had leprosy. And nobody could cure his leprosy. And he couldn't get anybody to help him. And there was a little maid, a little girl, in that passage of 1 Kings chapter 5, And she told her master where she could find help uh, with the prophet of God. And there's a great story of the miracle of the healing of Naaman the leper. A Gentile, by the way. And then you have the little boy in John. I think of John chapter 6. The little boy who gave his lunch, remember, to Jesus. And that lunch went a long ways, fed thousands of people. And you have the feeding of the thousands that were there. And God used a little boy that had his lunch. These are obscure people. Um, they, some of them are nameless. We don't know at all who they were, what their family was, where they, what, where they were from, or their families, or any of that. But God took note of them and used them to do mighty things. And there's story after story about that. Um, all the way through you know and some we know some we don't well i want to look at shamgar and a little bit more about him and the subtitle of this is do what you can because he lived in a time when it was a difficult time to be in israel he lived in a time where the enemy was now enslaving them it was a time where israel was basically serving the enemy And they were again enslaved, and this had come as a result of allowing themselves to go back into sin and being enslaved. And by the way, that's always a danger for a nation or nations that they follow God, and let's say there's a, a foundational aspect of following God, and then removing that or going away from that always brings enslavement, sometimes physically into enslavement to others, Um, that happens but coupled with that is always an enslavement to sin and so the principle as we've been going through this study in the book of judges you find that god wants his people to be free from that enslavement cycle and for the christian he wants us to be free spiritually in christ and the bible says um, that Jesus made us free, and He says, "Free indeed." In other words, truly free, and we should be free in uh, from our sin. In that, well, it talks a little bit about this man Shamgar, and we know from chapter four, the very just a few verses from this verse. This is one of the context of the times. It says, "And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord." So remember, they would cry out to the Lord. God would bring a deliverer or a judge. They, the, the judge would help deliver them uh, providentially through God's work and his power. And then the people for a season, a generation or so, would follow the Lord. But then they would go back into forgetting God, bringing in the false gods, committing idolatry, intermarrying with unbelievers, those kind of things. And then all of a sudden, they're right back in enslavement. And this is what was going on. But they would cry out again. And thankfully, as you cry out to God, he never tires of our repentance. And honestly, the life of faith is a life of one that is repentance. We need to constantly repent. And it doesn't mean we're always uh, conquered by sin and enslaved by our sin. But the aspect of repentance means that I'm going to turn, whether it just be a thought that I need to take captive or my actions that I've done or something I've said to turn and make that right first with God, hopefully with others. If you've offended others as well. Anyways, he says, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. Now this is the Canaanite King Jabin. He had a lot of chariots and for 20 years, he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So for 20 years, again, they had been enslaved. Then you go to chapter 5, and this is where it mentions Shamgar again, because he was contemporary with um, a couple other people we're going to cover. But it says, "...in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways." It was such a dangerous place to live, you couldn't go out on the highways or the main trails. You had to go off on the side trails to avoid the danger of living in the land. By the way, the further you get from God in a society, the more dangerous it becomes. And we are living in dangerous times in our country. There's much violent crime on the rise and the devaluation of human life in general and the property crimes that go on, and all of those things. And it's expected as people go away from God, and generationally go away from God, it'll just exponentially increase. Sin will abound. However, grace always abounds more if people will receive the Lord. And that's the story of the Bible, that our sin, as great as it can be, there is a greater, our Savior, who came to die for our sins. And if we will turn in repentance to him, he's promised to save. He's promised to deliver, just like he did in the time of Shamgar. And then it goes on to say this, village life ceased. You know, the old homestead just wasn't the same. And it ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel And they chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. The population of Israel had been disarmed by their enemies. That's another danger. When you can no longer protect yourself. And don't, you know, that's part of, I believe, an inherent right. The right of self-protection. Those kind of things. And in a sinful world where there's evil, people ought to have the right to protect themselves from that evil either on behalf of others doing it for you, or whatever, but, uh, or you yourself. But in Israel, there are this, this climate, and I would say the geopolitical climate of Israel at that day really shows a, really a very similar climate to our world today in many ways. Um, and it's the natural progression away from God. Life becomes more difficult, becomes more dangerous, and people become enslaved to others with power that's what was going on well it goes on to talk about shamgar and it says of shamgar that he delivered uh, says after him was shamgar the son of anath who killed 600 men of the philistines with an ox goad and he also delivered israel now i want to look at the phrase it says with an ox goad okay now uh, if you want an outline The outline is very simply this, uh, point number one, the man and his service, or the man and his work. We're introduced with Shamgar, who was a worker, and specifically he was in uh, agriculture, he was in farming, he was a herder or a shepherd in that sense. Uh, I don't think you shepherd oxen, you use them to plow fields and carry heavy loads, that's what he did. But he had an ox goad, that's what was in his hand. And I wrote there, start where you are. Shamgar didn't go to the finest military school. Uh, He didn't go to a prep school before that. He didn't go into, you know, the art of war for years and be a general something, you know, with a big name of recognition, all that. He was a farmer. And I might leave that there, not as an insult, but to say that God has his hand on those that are workers, and especially those who are workers in the field. And, you know, I say that because... Uh, I think some of the hardest workers that I've ever met are those that till the land and that, you know, have animals out there they have to care for and do that. Some of you have wor- come up in that profession or worked in that profession, are in that profession. Um, some of the hardest workers I ever, I ever saw and some of the best example of work I ever saw was in a potato field uh, during harvest or at a potato house, shipping potatoes in the winter, those kind of things. And just the hard labor that goes on. Good times that way in doing that. But we find here Shamgar, he was a worker. God had his eye on him. And he was enough of a faithful worker that God was going to take him and use him. And he was going to use him where he was at. Where he is. Well, I guess that's the way you say it. Where you are. And can I tell you that? Because sometimes we sit around thinking god could never use a guy like me or a gal like me or a kid like me could never use me because i just don't have those skills i don't have i can't stand up in front of people oh man how many times i've heard that there's a lot of days i've said that i've said oh i can't do that again god has given you if you're one of his followers he's given you at least, I believe, one gift that he supernaturally has gifted you with. You might not have discovered that gift yet, but I would say, you know how you discover those things? Go out and, and serve, work, trust him in those things. He's given us all very simple things to do, too. Sometimes it's the very task that you're given that's a menial task that nobody takes note of, right? They take note of it when it doesn't get done, right? Right? When the dishes are stacked up this high. Right? And, and, and you know, somebody comes, what, what happened today? You know. Anyways, uh, men don't get in trouble. Women don't get, don't, don't get your... I don't know who, who washes dishes in your house. But you know what I'm talking about. Those things that you notice when they're not done. But you don't notice that often when they're done day after day after day after day. And I often think of that. How are you serving in your house? How are you serving in your community, in your world? Shamgar was a man that had uh, a background of plowing and it says he had a goad in his hand now they still use um, creatures like I think these aren't oxen but they the oxen are are large like these uh, animals here and the farming and using a goad is still a modern day thing that goes on if you were to visit some countries of the world that's how they plow their fields still. And, you know, it's probably they aren't in great debt to do it because they haven't bought a $500,000 tractor or something like that. (laughs) But they are they're out there with their animals and they've got a a plow and they're breaking up that ground. And they're just and they've got a goad, that sort of pointy thing in the man's hand. I don't know if you can see it there. It's just a stick with a sharp end. That's a goad. And when the animal doesn't want to move, you just little poke here and there. Right. I know that some of you are thinking, I could use that on my spouse. You know, no, don't do that. Tr- trust me. Don't try, ever try that. You will get punched probably. But anyways. Uh, but, you know, we're going to goad sometimes and, and move along. That's what the animals were meant to do. They were meant to plow, but they had to do it in a controlled format. And so if the oxen started to go a little bit one way or the other, the guy behind the plow would just poke a little bit and they would turn or they would move. Or there was a little hook on some of them. They could slow them down as well they could do that. Shamgar spent a lot of years probably with his goad in his hand. That's what he did. And again, I'm thankful that God uses people where they are. He was in the field. That was God's training ground for Shamgar. I don't think when Shamgar was out there goading the oxen that That he realized what God would do with that little implement in his hand. But God was going to do a great work with him. And again, there's lots of scripture that talks about that. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, the Bible says here, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. That principle that Jesus by the way, takes note of in the context here of stewardship. If you're faithful in the little things, you can be trusted with the big things. That's what God says. Shamgar was, he was a useful person in the field, but he was going to be used even greater to deliver God's people. And again, he wasn't a warrior. He didn't have a sword or a shield. He had A spear or an ox goad is really what it was that's what he had what's in your hand it might not be and by the way we don't we don't as believers we're not to be waging war Jesus didn't teach us to go out and to slay the Philistines or to go out and conquer the land in that way that's not the commission that Jesus gave to his followers his commission was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone we're to do that, and we're to go and make, I'd say this way, this world a little bit better and a little more like Jesus. If this world was a little more like Jesus, it would be a lot better world, wouldn't it? A lot better. Now, it's not always better because of his people. I will say not beating up on the church or anything like that. But some will use the excuse, well, I don't want to be a follower of Jesus because that brother over there or that person over there or my mom or my dad, and they use that excuse. And I always say this, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Always go back to the Savior. If we were more like Jesus, there would be a whole lot different world. If the church was more like Jesus, we would be improved greatly. All of that. And I just say that if I walked more like Jesus, what would it be in my walk? And that's that's something we should strive for. And wake up in the morning and say, Lord, how can I be more like you today? How can I do that? I like what Jesus does when he's teaching and he points out like illustrations. Luke chapter 9 or 10 that is the story of the good Samaritan. We use that term to this day. It's actually a legal term. There are good Samaritan laws that protect somebody for doing good from legal, you know, harm in the sense of tort or other you know things that might happen. Uh Luke chapter 10 says, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Back in Jesus' time, and wherever this time was that Jesus is using, I believe it's a real story, a real account. He tells of a certain man who was down. He was headed down from Jerusalem to Jericho, And somehow on those highways, those highways were not safe. And thieves came upon the man, stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him for dead. The world's a hard place, and sometimes that's what it'll do to people. Sometimes society just says, oh, well, that's their problem. Too bad. (coughs) But you know, the story here goes on. Now by chance, it really wasn't chance, but it was divine, really. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Um, That verse convicts me, because there's times I look and I see a need, and I say, I don't think I can do that, Lord. I can't meet that need. Don't make me make that need. And I want to go on the other side of the road, you know. When you see someone that's in great need. The priest who should have been the most compassionate wasn't. Then a Levite. Levites were the servants in the religious order. Priests were the Lev- were, were part of that. Levites also. But another one comes along. And look what it says. When he arrived at that place he came and looked. And he passed by on the other side. At least he got his eyes on him. Sometimes we don't even want to put our eyes on people do we? But a certain Samaritan, Samaritans had no dealings with the Jews, remember, because they were just these, the Jews considered them half-breeds. They were part Jewish, but they really weren't full Jewish, so they weren't people that we want to associate with. But there was a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He saw a need, he saw somebody wounded, someone in need of clothing, someone in need of shelter, and he said, That person has a need, and I can help him. So he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Wow. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? I love what Jesus does. He says, go to your enemies, right? Go, go to you people you don't like. Be part of the solution. God used a Samaritan who had the ability to care physically for someone who was wounded, put him on an animal that he had, gave him a ride to an inn, put him up for a couple days and then said hey guess what if he if he needs more than that i'll pay you more when i come again we don't know his name this samaritan but we do know he's included in the word of god obscure person shamgar was a was somebody that again um was where he was at and that's where he decided he was going to be used of god Point number two: the man in his spear or the man in his weapon. The first one's the man in his work. This is the man in his warfare. Very simple. We don't have a lot. It just says he had an ox goad and he went out and he killed six hundred. Right? Killed six hundred men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Now we know that at that time the king, at least one of the kings of the Canaanites had 900 chariots that means he had foot soldiers also and that would have been a huge military and would have been a formidable enemy and God was going to take the powerful and those who were the oppressors in that way and he was going to use a farmer to deliver them that just speaks how great God is By the way, God takes the simple things and he uses the simple things to confound the wise and the weak things to confound the mighty things. That's what the Bible says. Why? So that, again, I believe this, that no flesh can glory in his presence. An ox goad. This is a picture of an ox goad. I don't know if it was exactly this way. It may have been even simpler than this, the one that Shamgar had. Just a stick... With a pointed end. And he was going to use it as a weapon. Remember previously there weren't any weapons in the hands of people. Uh, there wasn't a weapon to be found among 40,000. And yet Shamgar looked at his ox goad and he said I can use this as a weapon. He had a warrior's mentality. It's one of the things they always they teach you. At least if, if in, in the military I was taught that anyways. That anything can become a weapon if you can use it. Grab a rock, grab a chair, grab whatever is at hand and use it as a weapon if you need to use that as a weapon. Shamgar realized he had a weapon in his hand and God said, I'll use it. Now, we're not called as Christians to pick up ox goads and go out and slam people with them or spear them or all those things. That's not what it is. I mean, in a self-defense situation, that's whatever else. But I'm just saying this. That's not our mission, right? From the perspective of heaven, we are called to even a higher calling. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly weapons or weapons you can wield that are physical weapons, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Just like Shamgar was going to be used to take out an entire army essentially or at least deliver them he was going to do that with something that was not a typical weapon god was going to be with him though in it pulling down a stronghold we have weapons too ephesians chapter six says finally my brethren be strong in the lord and the power of his might put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. My warfare is not like Shamgar's. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Paul says, don't just take up one piece of the armor, the whole armor of God. The whole armory of God. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. Hey, my friends, one of the greatest weapons and the greatest defensive aspects of your armament is truth. We live in a world where truth is under attack on every side. And God's word is under attack that way as well. But nevertheless, his truth stands. Gird yourself with the truth of the word of God. Why? Because there's attacks going on all over the place. It doesn't take much of an imagination to see that because we see we see where um, the family is under attack in so many different directions. You have um the the whole unit of the family from from the defining of what marriage is to the uh aspect of what sexuality is, all of that, that's all under attack. All what God ordered is now under attack. So how do you stand against that? The truth. Gird yourself with the truth of the word of God. Doesn't change. His truth endures. Gird yourself with that. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's aspect positionally in Christ. We have his righteousness. When you get saved and you trust the Lord. He's promised to give you righteousness on your account. Justification is the term. But there's also an aspect of our walk. Which is To put on righteousness. We should not be walking like this world walks. Shouldn't be just doing dirty seedy things in the darkness. No. We should be walking in righteousness. In the light. And that's a powerful armor. And having shod or or prepared your feet. With the preparation of the gospel of peace. Your feet should be ready to go and to tell others. (laughs) Those feet that carry the rest of you. They should be on the move, not just stagnant. Shamgar was a man that probably walked a lot of miles behind some oxen. He knew what it was like to walk. Listen, as a Christian, walk with the Lord and have you, your heart ready to preach the gospel as you go forth and being active in that. Look what he goes on to say. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Those fiery darts come in all kinds of different shapes and forms, don't they? And the doubts come. and Those kind of things. And faith is the resistance to that. When he comes and says, you know, the Bill comes in the mail and you look at it and you go, oh man, it, that increased too? You know, have you ever noticed everything's getting more expensive? Came to look at my driveway the other day to have it sealed. You know, a guy came to do an estimate. He came And he shows me, he says, gone up a little bit. It's double that I paid like three years ago to steal the driveway. And I thought, oh boy, is it worth it? (laughs) You know, just walk on that stuff uh, and ride on it a little bit. But you know, I look at that and I'm like, wow. You know, that's not a huge need, but there are needs out there that are big needs. And is God not able to provide? Is he not able to meet our needs? Well, those doubts come, those fears come, those things come, and faith pushes back, and pushes it back to the enemy, that's what a shield does, take the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation is just that, the helmet is most important probably, one of the greatest important, you know, armaments is to cover the head, right, and because that's where everything is, but it's but he's, he's picturing a warrior prepared for battle. And first and foremost, his head is ordained is or, or, it, it, with that, that salvation from the Lord. like that. Then the offensive thing, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Not only are you to be girt about with truth, but you're also to be able to take the Word of God, the Bible, internalize it, and it pushes back like a sword. Faith and the sword, those two things as we go forth, are partly those those weapons that we push back with, right? And then praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Prayer. Prayer's the biggest part of your warfare. We we don't wage a warfare like Shamgar, who had to go and, and take these people out, you know, the enemy in his land. And and again, for the Israelites, the covenant of God dealt with their land. And they had to possess the land. They had to walk with God. God promised to be with them, but they had to walk with him. And Shamgar went out, and he withstood, and he drove them out, these killing 600. And he did so um, in that aspect. But our warfare is on our knees, or however you, your posture of prayer is. Pray. Pray. When's the last time you prayed for our country? When's the last time you prayed for the president? Do you criticize the president more than you pray for him? Uh Uh-oh. As Christians, maybe we should be praying for our leaders. I'm just using him as an example. I'm just saying we do a lot of complaining, but probably not a lot of praying. need to pray. Being watchful to this end. Watching, that's being aware, situationally aware. We shouldn't be in the, you know, Put your head in the sand, as they say, right? Uh, With all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, like Paul says, that utterance may be given to me. Paul says, you need to pray for me that I speak the message I should speak. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul had a hard time, just like the rest of us probably, with speaking for the Lord. He was the apostle. You're saying, Paul, the apostle, that great apostle, he had a hard time speaking boldly? Yeah. Well, How do I know? Because he asked for prayer. Elsewhere he says he asked for that a door of utterance may be given. He was looking for those divine opportunities to preach boldly, to share Christ, to to stand in sometimes the synagogues when they weren't happy with him. He was a Jew and... Here he was converted following Christ as Messiah. And they were angry at him. Like you look back at the missionary accounts of Paul when he was at Thessalonica. And then other places as well. In Ephesus that happened as well with, with others. And Paul says, I just need boldness. Pray for me, by the way. Pray for your pastor that he has boldness to speak what he needs to speak. The greatest service you could do for me is honestly just praying for me, my wife, our family. Because I feel like sometimes as I grow older, you think it'd be easier, and it isn't. It's harder. And I want to speak truth, and I want to speak it the way I should, however that comes out, in boldness, in firmness, in love, but that it always be seasoned with grace. And they say, God, help me to speak your word. Well, we learn a little more about Shamgar. We see the man in his service, start where you are. The man in his spear, use what you have, what's in your hand, my friends, use what you have. And then the man and his success, or the man in his winning. Do what you can. That's the title of the message this morning. Me. Do what you can. A lot of times we'll sit back and do nothing because we think we can't do anything. That's for someone else to do. Shamgar didn't pass the buck. He didn't pass the responsibility. He took the responsibility on. He said, I'm going to do what I can. He didn't have chariots. He didn't have a standing army. Probably didn't have a long, lengthy resume of education or anything like that. He was a farmer. He knew how to goad oxen. And he had an ox goad in his hand. he said, I can do something with that. God help me. And that may be your prayer. I hope it is. God, I, I don't know what I have in my hand. I, oh, I have this skill. I have this thing. I have this whatever it is. Money maybe. Whatever it is. And I can use that for you. Help me to do that. I can open my home up for others to come in and be a refuge. A place where they come and sit and hear about the word of God. Or well, there's so many, so many ideas. I'll let the Lord put that on your heart. Do what you can. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. He delivered Israel. I like that. You know, we're told throughout the Bible, we're encouraged to press on. And I love the writings of Paul. Again, you know, when you come to the New Testament epistles and over and over again... Paul encourages his followers and the Lord's followers to press on and fight the fight. Take it to the enemy and win. Not just go out and die, but win. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You know what? It sometimes gets old just starting to do good. Doing good when maybe you never get a thank you for it. Or you do good because you know, you, you know it's right. i got to do this, this thing and, and, and act a certain way because that's what you want me to do, Lord. But I'm getting tired of it. Everybody around me seems to be doing their thing. Why can't I do that? Don't do that. <laughs> I say don't go that way. Don't grow weary in doing good. Why? Because it's worth it in the end. It's worth it because we will reap if we do not lose heart. I trust that we have that opportunity. I think my sound just went way up. I don't know. I was getting scared of my own voice. There we go. All right, thank you. <clears throat> therefore, my beloved, First 1 Corinthians 1558, therefore my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Again, Paul uses that sort of as one of the the climactic statements of his great chapter on the resurrection. And because of the resurrection of Christ, the power to be raised from the dead, we are to walk as this, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That means like, it's it's totally different than the way we've learned to volunteer in the world right somebody says i need two volunteers and in the army i was told never volunteer for anything and you know that sometimes came true you don't do that but the way the work of god works is it should be like this i need a volunteer and everybody goes yeah me 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 me! pick me pick me right because that's how christians ought to be firstly that we just say i want to serve I just want to serve. And maybe there's just a little opportunity here and there. Hey, serve. We have some areas of service here in the church um, that you can serve. Come see me if you want to know how to do that. Um, how about this one? 1 Corinthians 16. Watch. Stand fast in faith. Be brave. Be strong. I love that. Just short little sayings. Stings, watch. That means keep your eyes open and your ears open your spiritual eyes and your spiritual ears too. watch don't let sin overtake you don't let whatever else come and press you into its mold the world the devil be watchful stand fast in faith there it is standing fast with the shield of faith uh, Paul was in a world where he would have regularly seen it was the Roman Empire and there were literally at given times millions of soldiers in the Roman Empire that were used in the defense of Rome and they, they served in the civil affairs as law enforcement all the way to military conquest. So when you went into any region any town anything you would have seen the military all over the place. And the picture, as they most likely would have trained and done formations and all that kind of stuff, the picture is the interlocking of shields in faith and standing firm. And if you read a little on military history, the Romans were, um, some of their tactics are still used today. Matter of fact, if you ever see riot police that are, engaged with a a physical protest that's throwing things out and all that they will cluster together interlock their riot shields and they will withstand hundreds more than they themselves represent Um, and that without doing anything except holding a shield and when he says stand fast in faith faith does that but it works best when you're standing fast with other people of faith too the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why would he say that in the scripture? Because when we do that, we're alone. And there are accounts in, in history of warfare, like in the warfare early of, of the British, what became you know later Great, you know, Great Britain, but the early days of the Roman conquest of Britain. There was one account I read of 100,000, I believe, the, of basically... It was almost tribal warfare at that time against about 10,000 Romans. And the Romans backed themselves down into a wet, swampy area where it was behind them. And they knew the enemy couldn't get them from behind at that point. And that 10,000 men withstood 100,000. It works. We can stand fast in a world where you're a minority. Be brave. Just that. Be brave. Hey, don't let fear drive you. Be brave. And again, that's coupled with others who are brave. Surround yourself with brave Christians. And make them your friends and your brothers and pray with them. And you realize that that bravery will rub off on you too. Because you say, he can do it, I can do it. She can do it, I can do it. And be strong. Be strong in the power of his might. I think we need more strong Christians. We need people that are solid. They, they're rooted. That daily they're showing up and they're exercising in the word of God and they're exercising in prayer and they're strong. We need more like that. Why? Because in the end it's worth it. Paul writes in his last letter shortly before he was, history tells us he was martyred at, Jerusalem, at uh, Rome. His head was cut off. That's how Paul went out of this world, with his head cut off. Look what he writes. I have finished, or I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's a promise you can camp on today. I like that. There have been people in my life over the years that have spurred me on to be a better Christian. And there are, of course, the Lord himself who has extended his unbounded grace to me. Oh, and, and thank you, Lord, for that unbounded grace. It His grace knows no boundaries that way. Thankful for that. I was thinking about that because sometimes, you know, those that came before us help us uh, hopefully model our life a little bit like theirs. And, and if they were good models, you know, that way. Um, I've had a lot of those kind of guys. And this morning I was thinking, and had my, sort of my mind there in, on the warriors of, of the past and others. And, and I thought of a man named Gordon Boynton. Here's a picture of Gordon Boynton. He went home to be with the Lord in 2016, just a few years ago. And I had the privilege, um, the first maybe two years at MBBI, when I was teaching full-time there, of uh, going out to Jackson Town Baptist Church with him, Um, and I would pick him up. He lived right there in Victoria Corner, right next to the school. And I would pick him up, and we would go out to church. And uh, I remember... Uh, it, it was it was it was great. Uh, he sort of was starting to suffer dementia. By the way, he would be Mary Mead's father. Mary and David Mead, their faculty there at our uh, staff at uh, MBBI, and Gordon was Mary's dad. And I remember uh, because he didn't have long term or he had long term memory, he didn't have short term memory. Every week we would talk about the same things, and I would ask the same questions. I mean, even though I knew the answers, but I wanted to hear it again and again. And on June 6, 1944, he was part of the landing force at D-Day, at Juneau Beach, where the Canadians landed. And he was wounded right after he landed. Um, I think he was out of action for a few weeks. Uh, went in to complete his time in the, in the military uh, there in Europe. But, you know, I used to ask about those stories and what it was like and what did you feel like when you were going in that, that ramp dropped and you got off the boat and had to wade through the surf and facing hostile fire all that kind of stuff and and he would share the same stories over and over again and i I used to think about this and i'd stop and i'd say lord thank you that i i've gotten to know such such great men like gordon boynton just a dear servant of the lord and he was faithful at going to church even when his mind was going on him and he continued to be that way and up until he couldn't do that physically anymore um, and ended up in a nursing home. But, But I often think back to that, and I think that was 79 years ago that D-Day occurred, just so you know, 80 years almost. And as I think about that, I think, Lord... Where is that generation? very few of them left. I think I heard recently, they were talking about one guy that was with Americans, the first wave, and they think he's the last guy living that was with the first wave. He's 98 years old now. Anyways, I'm just saying this. We can't live on the victories of the past. They often call that generation the greatest generation. Well, can I say this? We need another great generation to stand up in the power of God and go forward in a world that is different and contrary but a world that we can achieve victory in the same way and bringing the gospel to people and making a difference be that person lord we are grateful for your word grateful for people like shamgar and others very obscure people that maybe we won't give much thought to but we thank you they they gave gave, gave great thought to the God of the Word, the same God we worship today. Thank you, Lord, for your power to work. And Lord, thank you that the message we have as we go forth is for the pulling down of strongholds. And Lord, I ask that you would help us in these days to be standing firm and to be victorious because it's worth it in the end. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.